Cabinet of Curiosities by James Henry. Chapter 39 The lead witch boy stepped forward. Behind him, the second boy carried a jar, the third next to him holding something in his gloved hands. It was a deck of cards, the one the witches had been playing with when Rosa had walked into the bar, although she now realised they hadn't been playing at all. The third boy lifted up the top card, showing it to Rosa as much as the Earl. It was an illustration of a simple clay container. Cups, said the lead witch boy. He cleared a space in the snow with one trained foot, and taking the jar, laid it on the ground. The third boy held up the next card, a drawing of a simple stick. Wands, said the lead witch boy. He took the umbrella and placed it in the jar. Then the next card. Swords. He dropped the tiny paper knife into the jar. And coins. The fifty pence piece followed the paper knife. It clinked when it hit the bottom, a clear, bright sound that lasted much longer than it should. The silence that followed seemed to Rhoda to be deeper and darker as a result. Can we get on? snapped the Earl. Schedules and so forth. Rosa shivered as the witch boy stepped back from the jar, drew a breath and sang a single note. Out over the sea, the cyclone trembled. It curved over itself, then snapped back to the perpendicular, vibrating faster now, like a plucked string. Still on the professor's shoulder, Gary shivered. He seemed drawn to the sight and repulsed by it at the same time. His fur was standing on end, and his wings continually fluttered, then drew in, then fluttered again. Tamor was murmuring something to him, soft, reassuring words. Rosa had never heard her talk to him like that before. The witch boy closed his mouth, but the note remained, hanging in the air. No fireworks? asked the earl. No walking widdershins, no magic words? The witch shook his head, and the earl shrugged. No, it doesn't matter, he said, although he looked a little disappointed. The professor laughed, and there was pity in the sound. Poor Cedric, he said, always wanting more. Was it because you started with so little? Is that how you came to confuse possessions with love? It must have been many years since anyone called you dearest. The Earl turned on him, snarling. You dare, he started, but the Professor was frowning. Door, air, opens many doors, he said, suddenly. So which world is it you mean to travel to? The Earl smiled, his mask back on, and tutted, as if admonishing a child. My dear Professor, he said, and Rosa felt a chill at the word, as though the Earl were merely pretending to give him a title he would soon snatch away. All of them. But the Professor was shaking his head. It can't be done. The thing could pick up, say, a house, drop it in another world, certainly. But the only documented... You live too much by the book, said the Earl. Rules can be twisted, or deeper laws found where only chaos was thought to exist. The cyclone lives between worlds. In fact, it can only live between worlds, spinning into existence at the weak points where the fabric of reality has become patched and thin. Cherry Tree Lane, said Rosa. Indeed, interrupted the Earl, and many other places to boot. Of course, there were many ways to travel to and fro from other worlds in the old days, through wardrobes or into mirrors, old churches, forgotten wells, but those days are gone, and most of the doorways along with them. I dare say there's a station platform here, a door that opens onto a brick wall there, but the cyclone, now, there's a creature of a different order altogether. 
Only a few have been powerful enough to bend it to their will for a few seconds, using it to walk between worlds, skip from plane to plane with no consequence or payment. There's always consequence, said the professor. Always payment. Rosa heard him, and she thought she understood his words, but just then she saw the leaf boy. He was floating a little apart from the witches, just a few inches above the pier's surface, the greenery that cloaked him rippling gently in the breeze. A single leaf detached itself and was carried steadily out to sea, vanishing towards the cyclone. The boy saw Rosa looking at him and returned her gaze levelly. She wondered if he even understood what was happening, which side he'd chosen. The Earl continued. The way to summon it was bound into the treasures long before our time. The items themselves scattered across different worlds. They never should have been brought together. With them, I can break down the barriers between worlds, travel to as many as I want. With an army? It was Timor who spoke, glaring out at the ranks of air taxis. The Earl looked shocked. You people with your wars and your armies. My dear beast, Timor growled at that, low and long, but he ignored her and continued. I happen to be a businessman. I have associates, of course, and stout fellows all, but I can't be expected to fling open the gates of free trade alone. For the first time, the professor looked puzzled, out of his depth. Then why open a gateway to the other worlds, if not... His voice faded away, and realisation dawned. You mean to sell them? His voice was flat. The Earl grinned at him. Access? That's where the money is. Land, resource, workers. There are people out there who'll do your bidding for, well, peanuts. I wasn't the first to find that out. And they wouldn't even have to be moved. Invest in factories, call centres, roads, mines. Warmington will become a gateway to entire industries. We'll have to open an airport, of course. Get some development loans. Sustainable resource development, I'm thinking of calling it. The base of the cyclone was pulling slowly and painfully from the surface of the sea, lifting itself so its opening faced the pier like a great black mouth. It was at least a mile away, but Rosa could see landscapes shifting and flickering within it. A sandy bay dotted with sailing ships, green buildings sparkling with the light of another world's sun, the dark spires of a city that could have been part of Rosa's own world or another world entirely. The Earl made a barely perceptible gesture, and the line of air taxis began to roll forward. Tyres crunched over pebbles, then suddenly, silently, met the frozen sea and began to move faster and faster. One by one, they lifted into the air moving neatly into squadrons, at least twenty to a group. But you can't control where they end up, said the professor. He sounded more puzzled than worried. They'll become scattered across the other worlds, with no way of getting back. You're forgetting the last ingredient, said the Earl. He'd taken something from his inside suit pocket. It was curved, and didn't look meant for human hands, or even by them, but it did look sharp and deadly. Blood slash fire mused the professor. Essence of dragon, said the earl. They were standing beneath the pier's only street lamp. Rosa had just enough time to see that the earl was holding a knife, and that it glittered in the electric light before he drove it into the professor's chest. Chapter 40 Rosa gasped, and Gary shot into the air, a squawking mass of panicking fur and feathers. Tamora didn't even bark. She just hurled herself at the earl's throat, only to freeze instantly in place at a single murmured word from one of the witch-boys. The professor coughed and crumpled slowly to the ground. 
The Earl wiped the blade on the handkerchief and crouched next to the Professor. You were a dragon once, you see, he said quietly. You kept it hidden, but I found out, and a thing like that stays in the blood. The Professor tried to say something, but coughed again. A red stain was spreading quickly across his shirt. It was as though Rosa had awoken from a dream, or fallen into one. She ran to the Professor's side, sinking to her knees on the icy wooden surface and clutching his hand. The Professor managed to smile. I was a dragon once, he said. I'd quite forgotten. His voice wasn't weak, and he didn't even sound as if he was in much pain, but too much blood was seeping out onto the pier. It ran between the cracks in the wood and seemed to form strange symbols, coming near the jar of treasures without ever quite touching them. The witches had begun to sing again, fractured harmonies now, broken pieces of song being forced together in ugly, welded shapes. They were taking control of the cyclone, and in that place in the back of her mind, Rose could hear the great voice moaning, calling out as the witches cracked its storm bones into new positions, wrenching worlds into alignment. But Rosa didn't care about any of that. The professor, the kind gentleman who'd taken her in and given her a home, and whom she betrayed, was dying. Gary fluttered down onto Rosa's shoulder, his tail curling softly around her neck. It tickled a little. Tamor was frozen in mid-lunge, eyes wide, teeth bared, her front paws raised off the ground entirely. The snow was beginning to fall again, and a few flakes had settled on her nose. Don't worry about your dog, dear fellow, she's tip-top, said the Earl, reassuringly, tucking a knife back into his pocket. Just held in time for a while, it'll soon wear off, although it'll be long gone by then, of course, and so will you. He took out a keyring and pointed it at the prototype. The headlamps blinked once, and the engine began to purr. Like the air taxis, it too was undergoing a transformation into a flying vehicle, although this was a smoother process, an easy movement from one state to another. Bat-like wings extended from underneath the car's chassis, wheels withdrawing under the body even as the car rose gently up in the air. A large fin sprouted from the boot, and Rose remembered the first time she'd seen the car and thought of sharks. But it wasn't the car she should have been concerned about. It was the owner. The Earl was already striding towards the prototype, one door opening smoothly to accept him. This isn't even about money, is it? spat Rosa at his back. You just want to destroy anything you can't buy for yourself. The Earl sighed, and to Rosa's surprise, turned and sat on the car's running board, looking back at her. I envy you, he said to Rosa. She didn't even want to talk to him any more. The Professor had fallen silent, and though his gaze was on hers, she wasn't sure if he could really see her. His hand was gripping hers more feebly every moment, but the Earl was still talking. It all seems so vital, doesn't it? he said. Everything matters, every emotion fresh and real. But these times pass, Rosa, my dear. And exactly when is hard to say. For some, too, is the beginning of the end. Rosa felt the leaf boy standing next to her. He was looking down at the professor, head tilted to one side. He'd seen death before, she was sure of it. It was something he was familiar with, carried around with him. Under the thick scent of the leaves that clothed him, he stank of it. The Earl sighed. Rosa refused to look at him, but still he talked. You're right, of course. Money isn't the quest, my dear, he said. It's just a way of keeping score. You see, as a child, I was cursed. Rosa shook her head. 
the professor's hand in hers growing colder. His eye stared straight ahead. Not cursed enough, said Rosa, and not as much as I curse you now. The earl clapped his hands, delighted. So literal, he cried. This is exactly what I'm talking about. Do you know when I was young, younger than you are now? I'm only three days old, said Rosa, dully. Literal, said the earl again, but do bear with me. He was right, you know. I was called dearest, and a fine, young, graceful figure I cut in those days. But age withers. These times, Rosa, that seem so bright and fresh with promise, they fade. Every day is a day closer to death, a step further away from summer. My mother died when I was very young, and it was as though a story had ended. My golden days were finished, but I wanted them back. So you could live forever, said Rosa. She just wanted the Earl to get into the prototype and fly away. But he shook his head. So I could be me again, he said. Not this grown-up shell, this old man you see before you. I was never supposed to become this. I found potions that could restore youth for a while, even delaying the ageing process. But the real magics, the true magics, are no longer found on this earth. This is a thin, tired place. But out there... He gestured out towards the cyclone. The air taxis were just visible, heading for the dark mouth, mere dots now, tiny in the night sky. But the shifting landscapes were slowing down, the witch's song making them repeat in neat, regular patterns, little clockwork worlds. Magic potions, he said, fountains of youth, spells and magic pools, and a thousand ways of regaining all that once seemed lost, and doing all the terrible things I've done to get to where I am today. I know I've done wrong, Rosa, of course I do. But you see, it's all been in the best possible cause. I'll have to trade a few items away, I accept that. I already know plenty of people in the right places who'll be glad to speed up a public inquiry or two in exchange for an amusing talking pet or a singing sword. But eventually, I'll be able to go back. I was innocent then, and this world ruined me. But I can go back. There's always a way. The Earl stood and swung himself into the prototype. Then he paused briefly. The money will help, of course, he said, this time around. Then the car lifted almost silently from the pier, swung into the sky, and followed the others. What a complete buffoon, said the Professor, quietly. Yes, said Rosa. The decisions you make, that's who you are. True, he said. But I meant, there's a fountain of youth in the conservatory. He could have just asked. Rosa remembered sipping from the water the first night she broke into the cabinet. Really? she said, shocked. It just gave me a funny glowing feeling. Well, you already are a child. Also, you need to adjust the nozzles underneath for the proper flow. I think currently it just has mild antiseptic qualities. The professor coughed again, although it was a lighter sound now. He looked more relaxed, and for a moment Rosa felt a wild surge of hope. But he shook his head. Too far gone, I'm afraid, said the professor. Your friend here can sense it. He nodded at the leaf boy, who stood quietly a few feet to one side. Rosa stared at him with hate in her eyes. He's not my friend. He's just like the Earl. Another little boy, too scared to grow up. The leaf boy looked at her, not seeming to hear the words, then turned his gaze back to the professor, who twitched suddenly, his hand jerking out of hers. When children died, whispered the professor, his voice faint now, he went part of the way with them so they should not be frightened. The boy nodded and stepped closer, but Rosa swung at him with her fist 
and he jumped back. You're not a child, said Rosa to the professor, and I don't think you'd want to be again, even if you could, would you? The professor smiled and tried to shake his head. I'm not frightened either, he said. I've died before, or come very close at least. It didn't hurt. The leaf boy stared at the professor. The vines and creepers that ran across his body were trembling. Go away, said Rosa, but the professor frowned at her. I don't think he ever understood death, he said. Perhaps now will be as good a time as any for him to try. He beckoned weakly to the leaf boy, who looked at Rosa for a moment, then stepped forwards. But he's on the Earl's side, cried Rosa, then realised the stupidity of what she was saying. Reluctantly, she stepped aside. The leaf boy rustled as he walked past her, a couple of green tendrils reaching out to brush against her face. Angrily, she slapped them aside, but he was ignoring her now. Nothing to be afraid of, old chap, said the professor, and Rosa thought suddenly how typical it was that even moments from death he was doing his best to reassure another. The boy was next to him now, trying to reach out a hand to touch the dying man, but fingers and leaves trembled, halting a foot from him. Rosa couldn't watch. She turned her face to Tamor, poor frozen Tamor, and buried her face in a dog's fur. I'm so sorry, whispered Rosa in her friend's ear. There was no way of knowing if the dog could hear her or not. I don't know if you believe me, but you have to know it's true. I would never hurt you or the professor. You were the only friends I had, and now I don't even have that. The witches fell silent then, and in that strange moment when the sound you hadn't realised you could even hear any more suddenly stops, she felt something answering her loneliness. A distant moan, something to be felt rather than heard. Rosa, it cried, and at first she thought some more had been freed from her spell. Then she realised it was the cyclone. Help me, it said. Rosa, said another voice, about an inch from her ear. It was Gary. Rosa turned back to the professor and gasped. The boy's hand was on the professor's chest. The strands of greenery that enveloped him were no longer waving around, but wrapped closely to the boy's body. More vines seemed to be growing from the boy's hands, extending towards the professor, and as Rosa stared, extending into the professor. The vines rippled and twisted, more growing and folding themselves around him. It was hard to say where the boy stopped, and the professor began. Rosa yelled and hurled herself at the boy, trying to knock him away, but he was too strong holding her back with one arm. The professor's one eye stared straight up, open wide in shock. She couldn't hear him breathing. Let him go, said the voice in her mind, and Rosa didn't know if it meant the boy or the professor, but she couldn't agree to either. She raked the arm with her nails and even tried to bite it, but the leaves and bark were too thick and she could get no purchase. She spat the horrible taste from her mouth and half sobbed, half shouted at the boy, but he ignored her. Gary had flown to the top of the stall and turned somersaults with anxiety, shrieking with fear. Neither of them made any more sense than the other. The professor coughed. It wasn't a weak, faint cough, but a rich, loud expectoration. The sound of someone who just accidentally swallowed a large insect or was halfway through a heavy cold. He raised his hands to his lips and pulled away a small green leaf. Good Lord, he said. The boy let go of Rosa, who ignored him and dropped to the professor's side. The professor was struggling to sit up. 
although the difficulty seemed to come much more from the icy ground than his injury. They both looked at his chest, which was now coated in greenery, leaves lying one on top of another, plastered thick with sap and blood. Carefully, the professor peeled off the mass of leaves. The shirt underneath was shredded, but the skin was smooth, unbroken. The boy staggered and fell to his knees. Help him, said the professor. I think he just saved my life. Rosa took off her coat and wrapped it around the boy's shoulders. He stared at her with uncomprehending eyes, then seemed to smile, although it was hard to tell. What did you do? asked Rosa. Who are you? Leaves were falling from the boy's skin now, turning brown as they left him. One fell in Rosa's palm, withering almost instantly, becoming skeletal before her eyes. The boy tried to gnash his teeth, but they were falling from his mouth, landing one by one in the snow, turning from white to yellow to dust. There was no green on him now. It was like watching summer turn to autumn in a few seconds. The boy smiled, and Rosa found his hand in hers. The fingers were dry and rough, and she held them as gently as she could, as she leaned forward and kissed him on his cheek. His skin tasted not of dust, as she'd half expected, but of the dry, dark soil of the conservatory, warm and slightly bitter. When she opened her eyes again, the boy was gone. Her coat held his shape for a second, then collapsed slowly to the ground, spread over a rough patch of decayed leaves, black against the snow. The professor coughed again and spat something nasty off the edge of the pier. Do excuse me, he said, sounding rather embarrassed, and climbed a little unsteadily to his feet. But he was just a boy, said Rosa. He was older than me, you know, said the professor, much older. Perhaps he gave me what he had left because he felt he'd lived long enough. There was so much Rosa had wanted to ask the boy. Which Rosa had he thought he was giving the fourth treasure to? Had he been trying to help, even then? Or simply trying to speed the Earl's plan along? And now she would never know. Rosa stared into the night sky. The large dot that was the prototype was rapidly catching up with a series of smaller dots heading for the mouth of the cyclone. We have to stop the Earl, she said. The Professor and Gary stared at her. How? they said together. It was a good point. There was silence for a moment. The witch boys had stopped singing and were standing round the sledge, idly chatting. Tamor was still frozen, caught mid-leap, and the treasure sat in the middle of the pier, where they'd been left, abandoned now their work had been done. But maybe they still had a use. The treasures worked because they were brought together, all in the same place, said Rosa slowly. If we can split them up again, scatter them back into different worlds, the Earl might lose control. You mean throw them into the cyclone? said the Professor flatly. Rosa nodded. Rosa, said the Professor, the Earl and his men must be nearly at the cyclone already. I simply don't think there's any way of catching them up. Even if we made it back to the cabinet, there's nothing there strong enough to carry the three of us. She turned to him. Correct me if I'm wrong, she said, but didn't one of us used to be a dragon 